one thing I do like about Christmas, one of the commercial aspects I do like, as you can tell by what I've just said, is the Christmas movies that come out, particularly the cartoons. And we were watching Charlie Brown again this week, and I felt myself not just identifying with Charlie, um, but with one of the other characters as well. You know, Lucy and Charlie are passing out their scripts uh, for their Christmas play, and they pass their script out to one a young fellow named Shermie, and his response famously is, every Christmas it's the same. I always end up playing a shepherd. And sometimes as a preacher, you feel a little bit like that at Christmas. Every Christmas is the same. I'm going to be locked in this year. People are going to want to hear from Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapters 1 and 2 or maybe Isaiah 9. Um, but every year I feel like the same passage I have to look at. But this year what I thought I'd do in the spirit of Shermie is throw you a curveball and try to preach to you the Christmas story from the book of Galatians. Galatians. If you turn to Galatians, particularly Galatians chapter 4, I think you'll see that though you don't normally think about Galatians at Christmas, and I don't either, uh, that there's a good reason for us looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 today. And every Christmas it is the same, isn't it? We always want to worship our God who came in flesh and dwelt among us. And so in that sense, it's good that we recur every year and remember these things. Listen to Galatians 4, 4, and 5, and then we'll pray together. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Father, we thank You that in the fullness of time You sent forth Your Son to be born of the Virgin, to be born uh, under law so that You might redeem those of us who are under law and under the curse that comes because we haven't obeyed, that we might be called Your children. Behold what manner of love that we should be called the children of God and such we are, John says. We thank You that You sent Your own Son that we might become Yours. We pray that as we look at His Word today that You help us, God, that You honor Your Word before us, that You convict us and convince us and bring us great rejoicing, that You bring some today who are on the outside of Your family inside through Your Son. We pray in His name. Amen. What I want to do with these two verses is simply to walk through them phrase by phrase. I think you'll see uh, that there are six different phrases, and we'll just go through and walk through each one of them individually. Paul begins verse 4 by saying, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. First phrase there, When the fullness of time came. It's a reminder that Christ's coming wasn't an accident. God didn't look down from heaven one day and say, oh, this Jesus guy is really doing well. Maybe I should take him and start calling him my son and do some amazing things with him. That's not the way it worked. Nor is the coming of Christ, was the coming of Christ a reaction on God's part. It wasn't either that God looked down one day and said, the world is really in a mess. What are we going to do? What should we do, Jesus? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you and you go down there and fix it. That's not how it worked. God sent forth His Son when the fullness of time came. Just when He planned to, in other words. 
Just when God had planned it, just when the time was right, just when the clock had struck 12 and it was time for God to do His work in the world through His Son, that's when Jesus came. God had a set time in mind that He was going to send Jesus. You can read the Scriptures and tell that that had always been the plan. For instance, Isaiah 9 gives us this great passage that we read every year at Christmas. For unto us a child will be born and a son is given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. That hadn't happened yet when Isaiah wrote that, but it was God's plan. God had it planned out. We turn often to Isaiah 53 and read about the crucifixion of Jesus, written 700 years before the fact, and we say, amazing, amazing. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet when Isaiah wrote that passage, and God had a plan. Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was always God's plan. Even back in Genesis 3.15, where God is cursing the serpent for having deceived Eve, He says to the serpent that the seed of a woman will come and you will bruise His heel, but He will crush your head. That there's going to be someone born of a woman who is going to defeat the work of Satan in the world. God's Son came not by accident, not as a response to everything going south, but it was always the plan. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. And God also made preparations so that the time would be fulfilled. So that when it was time for the Son to come, everything would work just right. I said we were going to Galatians 4 and we'll stay there, but just keep your finger there and turn back to Luke chapter 2. I want to read to you some of these famous verses that we hear every year from Luke 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen to God working human history so that when the fullness of time came, all would be prepared for His Son. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor in Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Why is that important? Well, we just read earlier in the book of Matthew that the Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. And Joseph, husband of Mary, or or fiancé of Mary, was from Bethlehem, but he wasn't in Bethlehem. How's God going to get him to Bethlehem? Well, he's going to work so that Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, is going to call for a census just at the right time so that Joseph, when Mary is nine months pregnant, will be in Bethlehem in the fullness of time to fulfill what God had said would happen. I mentioned to you that crucifixion wasn't even invented when Isaiah wrote his book. And God worked in the fullness of time to bring about the Roman Empire to invent crucifixion, one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment ever invented, so that when the time came, the prophecies of Isaiah would be fulfilled. The Roman roads that the Roman Empire built allowed Paul and the apostles to take this message of Jesus in His birth and His life and His death and His resurrection to the known world much quicker than you would ever think a few hundred years prior. In the fullness of time, God worked so that the Greek Empire arose and the whole known world spoke Greek so that when the Gospel went out, there was no language barrier. 
all these things God did, working through empires and nations and kings and emperors, so that when the fullness of the time came, God would send forth His Son and everything would be just as God had said. It's really amazing when you think about it. Just think about Rome. Rome, when compared to the rest of the world at their time, was the most powerful military country the world has ever known. More powerful than the Soviet Union, more powerful than the United States, more powerful than the Nazis in Europe, more powerful than the British Empire as they expanded across half the world. The Roman Empire spread geography, geographically almost larger than any other empire ever has. Its longevity is amazing. The greatest empire that ever was, and God raised up that empire to serve something bigger, namely a baby in a manger. God raised up that empire to serve something bigger, namely a carpenter hanging on a cross. God was working the whole world, driving human history to that stable in Bethlehem and beyond that to those hillside towns in Galilee where Jesus ministered and preached and beyond that to the cross at Golgotha and to the tomb that was empty on the third day. In the fullness of time, Just when God had planned it, God worked everything so that His Son would be the center of history. So in the fullness of time, Paul says, God sent forth His Son. Here's a reminder that Jesus, the Bible teaches us, is God Himself in the flesh. Notice carefully what Paul says. God sent forth His Son. Jesus wasn't like other babies. If you have a baby, then at the moment of conception, that baby comes into being. Jesus didn't come into being when He was in Mary's womb. It says God sent Him forth. In other words, He already existed. He was pre-existent. And then from where He was, God sent Him forth into the womb of Mary and then out of the womb of Mary into the world. It's a reminder of what John 1, 1 says. Speaking of Jesus as the Word of God, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then God sent Him forth. So Paul, sent, Paul says God sent forth His Son, and it's important that we notice the word Son as well. When Paul calls Him His Son, he's saying something significant. Jesus walked around claiming to be God's Son, and it got him in a lot of trouble. One of the passages where you can find that is John chapter 10. He claims to be God's Son. He claims that God is His Father, not in the sense that everyone is created by God and so we're all from one Maker, but His unique Father. Jesus claims that, and the Pharisees go nuts. And they say to Him in chapter 10 of John, verse 33, we're going to stone you. Not because you're doing miracles, but because you are making yourself out to be God. How is he making himself out to be God? By saying, God is my Father. I'm his Son. And what they're saying is, and what they knew, if someone claims to be the Son of God, then that person is claiming to be deity himself. And Jesus was. And so is Paul, by calling him his Son. That's what Paul is saying here. The Son is equal to the Father. He says it elsewhere in places like Colossians chapter 1. And then Colossians 2.9, he says all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ, in Jesus. The author of Hebrews says it as well. He says Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. John 1.1, which we just read, Jesus 
The Word of God was in the beginning with God, and He was with God, and He was God. That's what Paul is reminding us here. When the time was right, God came into the world as a man. Jesus is very God of very God. Now take that truth. Take those verses that I quoted to you and plug them back into the manger and the stable in Bethlehem. And what you realize is that here is Jesus resting on a bundle of straw in a feed trough and it's the same God who says, Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Go back to the manger and you realize that this baby who is being worshipped by lowly shepherds was the same person who Isaiah 6, chapter 6, verse 3 says, The angel sang to him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The shepherds, previously the angels. This baby, who looked just like every other baby who was born in Bethlehem that month and that year, was no ordinary baby. So that Joseph was told they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Very God Himself. And yet, Paul says, He was born of a woman. God Himself comes into the world born of a woman. Thought about the deity of Jesus, now the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was fully God, fully human. Get that clear in your mind. He's not half man, half God like a minotaur. Some grotesque thing that we could create in our minds that's half and half. That's not what Jesus was. He wasn't a freak of nature. He was fully God and yet He was fully man. He was fully God. He took on flesh and didn't leave His godness behind. But as a man, He was fully man as well. And He wasn't just seemingly a man either. Many people in the early days of Christianity tried to come along and say to the Christians, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't really a man. He just seemed like a man. He just looked like a man. He had qualities like a man, but he wasn't really a man. So he was some superhuman or maybe some apparition that just appeared to be human. And that's why 1 John is so concerned to say, every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. If a spirit doesn't confess that Jesus has come, and that spirit is not of God. So what Paul is reminding us and what the Bible teaches us, Jesus is fully human. That's important. He ate, he drank, he played when he was a little boy. He grew up and attended weddings. He got tired and slept. He went on a long day's journey and was worn out at the end of the day. He laughed, he cried, he bled, and he died. Just like all of us. So that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have someone with whom we can't identify. We have God-made flesh. Now again, weave those truths back into the Christmas story. Back into the scene in Bethlehem. We sing sometimes, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. When you get to heaven, ask Mary if that was true. I don't think it was. Because Jesus was a little boy just like your children were little boys and little girls. We need to be careful not to over-romanticize what we read about the Christmas story. Those animals were in the stable and it stank. And Mary was giving birth to a son and surely there was all the commotion and the sounds that come out of a delivery room even today. It was probably damp and chilly. 
Joseph was like any other husband standing there trying to do his best to hold things together, trying to encourage his wife, but not doing as well as he should. And it was all a thoroughly human scene. And then you have the baby who was born and was really a little boy who got hungry in the middle of the night, just like our children do, who whimpered for his mother, who had to be wrapped up to guard against the cold. He was just like us in these ways. And it's these stark human realities of it all that make Christmas so amazing. If we turn Jesus into a little baby, a person who never really felt deeply because he was God and and knew everything and so nothing ever caught him off guard or, or hurt his feelings, if we turn him into that, then the fact that he was God made flesh becomes somehow not very meaningful. Somehow something that we can't connect to. We need to remember that He was fully human. We need to remember that the God who in Exodus 3.14 said, I am who I am. The God who has no beginning and no end condescended and was born in Bethlehem. God was born that day in Bethlehem. We need to remember that the God, Psalm 135.6, who does whatever He pleases both on earth and in heaven, came to live among a working poor family and to be their son. As Augustine says, our ruler was ruled by a young woman. The God who does whatever He wants came and submitted Himself to a family. The God, Psalm 104.2, who covers Himself with light as a cloak was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Yes, this is very God of very God that we worship at Christmas, but it was also someone who was fully human, born of a woman. And Paul says, born under the law. Born under the law. This is at the very least a reference to the fact that Jesus was Jewish. Luke 2, he was of the house and family of David. It's important also because he was Jewish and because he was of the house and family of David that he's in the family tree of the Messiah. So it doesn't come as a great surprise when we find out that this one is claiming to be the king of the Jews. But I think more than referring to his Jewish lineage, the fact that he's said to be born under the law is probably a reference more than that to his obedience. His obedience to God's law, to God's ways. Jesus was born, just like every other Jewish boy in those days, with the expectation that he would learn the law of God and that he would love the law of God and that he would do his best to obey the law of God. He had all of those expectations. We shouldn't think of Jesus like the Greek gods and their sons and daughters running around above the law doing whatever they want. That's not what Jesus was like. Paul says he was born under the law. Though he was God's son, though he was God himself, he came and he lived, was expected to obey just like every other boy was. He probably learned the law day by day on the knees of his mother and at the feet of his earthly father. He was born, Paul says, under the law. But... There is a profound difference with Jesus. Unlike the other Jewish boys growing up in Nazareth where his family moved and lived, unlike his parents, unlike you and unlike me, Jesus was born under the law, expected to obey God, expected to obey His Word, and Jesus actually did it. 100% of the time. Every single day of His life. Every jot and tittle of God's law. From his youth, we see that Jesus' heart was fully devoted to the Lord. Remember when he was 12, 
He was in the temple and his family went home from the feast and they couldn't find him and they went back and found him in the temple and he was surprised. And he said to them, why didn't you know where I was? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? By the time he's 12, you can see that he loves the law of God. He loves the things of God. He loves to be about his father's business. And as an adult, John 8, 29, he could go on and say, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. And the apostles say about him things like this. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. Jesus lived under the law, and unlike you and unlike me, Jesus kept the law. Jesus kept the law. He was expected to obey, to honor his Creator. And we have all gone astray like sheep. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. But Jesus Christ, unlike us, tempted in every way, but without sin. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now someone may say at this point, okay, so Jesus is fully God, got that, fully human, got that, without sin. Wonderful. What is this, a theological lecture? Well, theology is simply the study of God, and so in that sense, every sermon ought to be a theological lecture. However, preaching is more than that, isn't it? Preaching is taking the theology and putting the so what to it. So what? What does this matter? And that's what I want to do this morning. I want you to learn theology. I want you to go out here knowing for sure that the Bible teaches Jesus is fully God and fully human and lived his life without sin and that this is the import of his coming and being born of a virgin conceived by the Spirit. But I also want to give you the so what. And so does Paul in verse 5. Why is it important that Jesus came in the fullness of time, sent forth as God's Son, born of a woman, born under the law? What does that matter? Well, He did these things so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's the so what of verses 4 and 5. All the theology of verse 4, rich as it is, feeds the salvation that Paul speaks of in verse 5 and that we partake of if we believe on Christ. So think out verse 5 with me. Two phrases. So that He might redeem those who were under the law. We said this already and I point out again that you and I, like Jesus, are under the law. We are expected to obey God. We're expected to honor God. We're expected to do what He tells us to do in His Word, to keep His commandments. But unlike Jesus, we haven't done it. We simply haven't done it. And therefore, Paul says we need to be redeemed. We need to be bought back out of our terrible situation. What's the situation? Well, you can look back just one chapter in Galatians 3.10 and see what the situation is for those who are expected to keep God's law and don't do it. Galatians 3.10 Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. We know we're supposed to obey God. We don't do it. And there's a curse hanging over us. A death sentence hanging over us because of our sin. The wages of sin, Paul says elsewhere, is death. But Jesus has come so that He might redeem those who are under the law. Redeem those who are under the death sentence. Redeem those who have earned the wages of sin. He's come to take our place, if you will, on death row. God hasn't destroyed us yet. 
We deserve it. We're on death row. We're awaiting our sentence. And Jesus comes and he says, I'll tell you what. I will stand in your place. I will take your death sentence for you. I will go to the cross and take all of your sins, all of your guilt, all of the punishment on myself and take it for you so that you might be redeemed out from under the law and the curse that comes with it. He himself, First Peter says, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might redeem us out from under the law. And so Paul's point in verse 4 then is that not just any old person can do this. I can't come along and die for your sins. You can't die for your children's sins. Your parents can't die for your sins. Great religious leaders cannot die for the sins of the people. The President of the United States can't stand before God's judgment seat and say, I'll stand in the place of all the people that I represent. It doesn't work that way. Not just anyone can redeem those who are under the law. It had to be someone who was born of a woman, yes, fully man, so that he could die. Jesus had to become a man so that he could die. God as a spirit, can't die. He had to become a man so he could die. And he had to become a man so that he could die for other men. Like Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats in the end just won't do. Goats can't die for humans. Humans have to die for human sin. And so Jesus had to be born of a woman. He had to become a man. But for another human to represent us, Paul is saying, that person would have to be a sinless person. He would have to have been born under the law and kept it perfectly. Again, he couldn't be like Zeus, who lived in the world as a god, so, so-called, and could do whatever he wants. No, this person had to come and live under the law, live under the same set of rules that we have lived under and broken, and keep them perfectly. If he hadn't, he would have, no, he would have his own sins to die for, wouldn't he? If Jesus had come under the law and broken the law, the curse of the law, Galatians 3.10, would hang on him. But because he was God himself, who didn't sin, the curse does not hang over him. So a human has to come. He has to come under the law. He has to come and live sinlessly, but no mere human can do that. And so the human who would have to come and die for sinners to redeem them would also have to be God himself. The only way that someone could come and live sinlessly and represent the entire human race at the bar of God's justice would be if God himself became a man. He's the only one who could do it. He's the only one who could live without sin. He's the only one who would love us enough to go to the cross for us. That's why the theology of Christmas is so important. It's not just a quaint little story about a king who goes and lives among his subjects to show them that he's not a whole lot different than they are. That's not what it is. This is not the prince and the pauper we're celebrating this weekend. There is great truth behind what happened in that manger. There is great theology behind the Christmas story. And it's so important because if Jesus wasn't fully man, he would have been incapable of dying for anyone's sins. And if he wasn't fully God, born of a virgin, conceived by the Spirit, he would have inherited a sin nature of his own. He would have sinned and he would have been unqualified to die for someone else's sins. He would have had to die for his own. And if he hadn't lived a sinless life under the law, if Jesus had given in to the devil in those 40 days in the wilderness, if he had given in when he faced one of those many temptations that Hebrews says we all face and he faced as well, if he had ever once disobeyed his father, he would have been disqualified from dying for our sins. But he didn't. He did come as a man. 
He did come as God himself. He was under the law and he did keep it perfectly. And therefore, all of our future hope, our life is wrapped up in the body of this seven-pound baby boy in Bethlehem. If he is not who the Bible says he is, if he is not Emmanuel, God with us, then we're without hope. So the Bible says Jesus was fully God. He was fully man. He was fully obedient to his Father, even unto death. And he has redeemed us from under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now the Christmas story has come full circle. God sent forth his Son so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God sent forth his one and only Son to live and to die for us so that we might be called children of God. It's a difficult trade if you're on the Father's end. But He loved us enough to do it. And it's a wonderful trade for us, isn't it? The Son of God dies so that we can become the sons and daughters of God. God sent forth His Son, His only begotten Son, into a world of sin to be born in a stable, to grow up, in a family, to be the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1, to be tempted in all ways like we are and yet without sin, to be despised and forsaken of men, to bear in His body our sins on the cross, to rise again on the third day, all of this so that you and I might be adopted as children of God. That's a great story. It's a great reason to celebrate. It's a great plan that God came up with. It's a great Savior that we worship at Christmas. And I just want to ask you as we finish this morning, if this Christmas you will entrust yourself to this Savior, this Christmas and this Savior, not just a quaint story, not just we should all love one another and be with our families at Christmas, but this Christmas will you commit your life in trust to this Savior who is your only hope, to the God-man, who took on your sins and laid down His life for you. I hope you will. I encourage you to do so. This Christmas, put your trust in this Savior. Behold, said the angel, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Father, we... Hear your word and we want it to move our hearts. I pray that it moves our hearts today. I pray that the amazing wonder of God become man and man who is fully man and yet God would fill us with awe and God that we would see that this was the only way, Father. This was the only way for us to be redeemed and you've done it fully. You worked human history You became a man. You lived as a man under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, under the law, perfectly for us. You died in our place. You're risen on the third day so that we might walk in newness of life. You've done everything, Jesus, and we simply must throw up our hands, stop trusting ourselves, and believe in your name. We pray that we would. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen.